Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, the podcast where we talk with our members about what is currently top of mind for pharmacists, student pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians. My name is Joel Hennenfent, and I will be your host today. I am a steering committee member for the ASHP Formulary Submission Resource Center and the Chief Pharmacy Officer and Associate Administrator for Laboratory and Medical Imaging at Truman Medical Centers in Kansas City, Missouri. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is part of a Formulary Submission Resource Center Innovation Podcast Series, where we will emphasize best practices in formulary management including podcasts on unique strategies for biosimilar adoption, integrating biosimilars into your IT systems, biosimilar reimbursement challenges, and keeping patients safe from white bagging. This is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at www.formularytoolkit.org. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Ollie McBride, Clinical Coordinator Hematology Oncology at the University of Arizona Cancer Center. We will be discussing biosimilar reimbursement challenges. Thank you all for listening. Let's get started, Ali. Today's topic is biosimilar reimbursement challenges. What does the future look like for biosimilar implementation for oncology and non-oncology therapies? Is there anything exciting in the pipeline? And thank you, Joel. And I think that's a great question. You know, what is exciting for biosimilars? And and we're seeing this kind of new generation of biosimilars coming up. When we're looking at formulary management, we are so used to looking at new therapies and also evaluating generics in that same setting that we really haven't pondered the inclusion of biosimilars into formulary management. I think we've seen over the last few years more and more discussions about, you know, what is a biosimilar basic education in your P&T committees for biosimilars, making sure the correct vernacular is used for biosimilar implementation as well. But looking at this information as really 2020 is the year of the biosimilar. I almost feel like Terminator, you know, when Skynet becomes awake here. But essentially what happens is we are looking at a number of therapies in the oncology and non-oncology pipeline get approved. And also in 2020, this is the year where FDA several years ago had decided to transition some of those generic molecules, which are biologics, such as insulin, to be actually deemed a BLA or biologic license-based application product. So from this standpoint, we're adding more and more therapies on there, which means that from a formulary standpoint, from a P&T standpoint, we have a lot of new opportunities to look at biosimilar implementation into our formulary and also to evaluate it from several different mechanisms. And they come as three in this case. The first one is again, inpatient-based formularies. Again, that's gonna be crucial for that process because the inpatient formula, we're looking at a DRG-based reimbursement. So quicker implementation for those cost savings are important, if not salient. We also have, if you have a specialty pharmacy um, on-site or within your IDM-based system, how does that correlate as well um, based on biosimilar implementation and also stocking? And lastly, your outpatient infusion center, you also have to address as well. So we have to really pull all of these different pieces into the puzzle for biosimilars. And thus, when we take a look at our formularies, we really have to address what is actually coming up in terms of treatments, but also where we may see more revenue cycle-based ingredients come into play. Contracts may also come in here and also other roles for biosimilars as well. 
So looking at this from a standpoint of implementation within your PNT system and what's exciting, I think the top three things that really pop up off the bat that hits many of our ASHP members is the fact that we're going to see long-acting Glargine, or Atlantis, hit the biosimilar realm here rather shortly. We had some follow-ons, you know, Boringer Ingelheim had a follow-on a few years ago that was actually a follow-on biologic, not a biosimilar, due to actually moving around the pathway for inclusion under the Affordable Care Act. And so now we'll see more of these in the near future, which is going to be huge for us because it only means lower cost for patients, excuse me. But also in the outpatient setting, we're going to have these lower cost products. And in so, or in as much as this actually is changing, we're going to have a lot of discussions on interchangeability. And state laws will actually now be included in some of our formulary management pieces because almost, let's say, 90% of all states have a biosimilar law. And if you're not familiar with that, you're going to have to look at that from your formulary pathway for inclusion under your P&T committee. So really kind of in a nutshell, I think your question is really a very ripe question. It's very exciting. We are seeing a lot more biosimilars come up. Now we're going to be moving into these non-oncology therapies, and that's going to be fantastic for us to look at, again, rheumatology, immunology, endocrinology in these areas of development. And that's only going to lighten the load for our patients. And as you know, insulin is so expensive. So for us on the formulary team, but also on the implementation side, we're going to be looking at the role of formulary inclusion, but also how it relates to patients. And that means both inpatient and outpatient, but also specialty pharmacy as well. So we really have to develop some guidance in terms of how it's going to have a product transition to inpatient to outpatient, but also we have to address it with payers. And that's going to be a very hot topic for years to come because we don't have biosimilar parity laws where we can actually state what biosimilar we'd like to use or brand name in the setting of our own facility as well. Very interesting, Ali. I've known you for, for many years and recall presentations you've given on biosimilars all the way back to just the FDA structural framework through efficacy and safety studies. And now I would really like to learn more about what you think are the most challenging barriers with biosimilar implementation from a reimbursement perspective. Well, that's the hottest topic out there. I think every CFO and, and pharmacy director would love to listen to this a little bit too. So from that perspective, Joel, looking at what's happening from the reimbursement perspective, we have a lot to fashion ourselves around. And this is something I, I do take pause with. It's one of the hardest issues right now is to address reimbursement with biosimilars, but also from an infusional standpoint, again, a little bit different than our, our typical standpoint in, in many times of administration, is the fact that we have brand name or reference-based biologics, and we have a biosimilar. And we're seeing a lot of errors in regards to the finance team saying what the correct drug therapy is, and then your site or infusion site is administering an incorrect drug. And so you may actually lose revenue on that. So let me take this a step back and talk through that process. So with biosimilars has been an actually evolution of reimbursement. Initially, they were going to use the same J codes for biosimilar to drive down the price under the BPCIA Act, the Biologics Price Competition Act which actually was approved under the Affordable Care Act in 2009. And that idea of the same HICSPICS code or J-code, for those who are aware of it, would lower the price because it induces competition under that same J-code. They then moved this back in 2018 so that each biosimilar has their own J-code. Now, what that has done is it's allowed CMS, Center for Medicare Services, to actually charge with that each biosimilar having its own price. So if you are looking at a biosimilar implementation under a WAC-based site, not a disproportionate or, again, a safety net hospital, 
you're going to be getting plus 6% on that biosimilar. So that's going to be important. So really, you actually have the biosimilar cost plus 6% of that reference biologic on that charge. And that's, that's the key ingredient. So you do have to know that. Now, for 340B or safety net hospitals, you actually will be, once you move into something called pasture status for biosimilars, which is the first three years, you're actually getting that ASP of the reference product plus 6%. So it automatically induces you. You have to switch because you do see a very large savings in the outpatient setting there. So that's just that first piece of the reimbursement. The other piece, which we're seeing for EMR integration is patient assistance. And we have had some hiccups there across the country in regards to that. But what's happening is we're changing between a biosimilar reference biologic or, again, vice versa, depending on what the payers are saying. So we are having issues in which maybe the EMRs aren't matching up correctly with the biosimilar codes or vice versa, where the biosimilar codes may not be matched up with the brand name. And therefore, the charge may actually uh, need to be reviewed for each biosimilar or reference product because that can be a source of error. But from our standpoint, we're seeing payers dictate what you can use in the outpatient setting. And what that's leading to is a very larger dynamic for biosimilar implementation. What I mean by that is if you're looking at approving one biosimilar, your facility, and also one brand name, you do have to address the fact that you may have three to four different payers, major payers in your system, requiring different biosimilars for their patients. So that only means you actually have to stock everyone. You'll have to actually have an approved biosimilar in these cases, but you'll also have to have remnants due to actual payer-based associations. And in addition, you also have to review that with the EMR system to make sure you're picking that correct drug and compounding it. So it's also a safety issue as well. And that's just some of the issues that have popped up. We've also seen one issue with one biosimilar, again, not really a payer issue, but a medication safety issue, which we had caught, which is the fact that one of the boxes looked like a brand name drug. And you actually were seeing through ISMP some near misses because of that too. So we have to be aware of those picks, you know, barcode scanning and a few other pieces to make sure it's correct. But the biggest part is making sure you're actually being paid correctly for biosimilars. And if you understand the actual price reimbursement, and everyone needs to go through this at your P&T committee so they're aware, um, and it needs to be done under a vigilant-based review, is the fact that you do have differences in reimbursement based on the reference product's ASP. And that is one of the biggest takeaway points for the first three years of that biosimilar as they go through pasture status. Thank you, Ollie. That was very complicated, and you made that very <laughs> simple in that, that explanation. So thank you for that. So with your expertise and maybe a little bit of a crystal ball, what do you foresee from biosimilar inclusion looking like for formulary implementation over the next five years? No, I think that's that's what we're all trying to figure out right now. We, you know, we're, we're seeing what's happening with the BPCIA. We're seeing some changes by FDA, which are really good. You know, Scott Gottlieb has done a great job on this. I really allowed him for his work in this field. You know, we didn't have biosimilars 10 years ago, right? This is very new to us. It's a new structure. It's a new definition. And as I say in medicine, 50% of what we do is based on definitions, whether it's reimbursement, workflows, drug therapies or treatments. So going from the clinical role to the operational role or leadership role, it's all about definitions. So if we're looking at biosimilars, looking at these first 10 years, we've had a lot of hiccups. We haven't seen the mass amount of growth that we wanted to, that the federal government wanted to, to decrease prices. We've also had a very large amount of submarine patents roll up. And I don't know if, how many people are familiar with submarine patents, 
What that means is if we have a brand name drug therapy, they may have patents on a buffer. They may have patents on other indications. They may have patents on how a drug is produced. And so there can be some delays of a biosimilar, which is approved, but may go through two to three to four years of litigation. And we're also kind of concerned about that. And we've seen that already with some therapies. Sandoz and Amgen just had a recent issue on that with Amgen winning that lawsuit. And we're seeing a lot of these changes under patent litigation. So if I'm taking my crystal ball and trying to figure out what the next five years is after the first 10 years of biosimilars, I think we're going to see two or three things really evolve. The first thing that we're going to see is new models of development. So when we're going through this under a P&T or formulary management piece, we expect over the next few years that there'll be less of a focus in the clinical phase three trial development than the phase one development. And what that means is because we're so familiar with these data sets for biosimilars, if we have the structure and function down the PKPD, we may see less of a burden or developmental situation with phase three trials and get more therapies approved under the consideration of phase one trials and PKPD trials. So that's going to be a shift I foresee in the near future. We've seen that with already with Peg Philgrastum. We're going to probably see more of that as well. The other piece, which I think is going to be that second crystal ball, you know, you're only paying me $5, so I'm not getting paid enough to give you all of the answers for the future. But here's my second one out of three, and that is going to be biosimilar parity. We're going to see a lot of information coming out about biosimilar parity. I think there will be laws that will allow institutions like ours across the country to revolutionize workflows in the biosimilar setting. Right now, we are beholden to payers to tell us or dictate to us what we actually treat with because of the fact that they actually have contracts with the biosimilar or brand name product. With the advent of hopefully a biosimilar parity law, this is our goal. Again, I could be wrong on this one. It would help us and also minimize errors and maximize our workflow in addressing what therapies we need to use. And therefore, having that biosimilar parity, kind of like oral chemotherapy parity, will then allow our facilities, our sites to have one biosimilar be used for all patients and therefore reduce the need for redundancy of biologics or biosimilars in that same area. And the third one, the big one, which I'm going to pull through here, I kind of feel like I'm you know, getting that Monday night football game and, and trying to throw out the actual over and under on this one. For me, I think we're going to see over the next few years, about three to four biosimilars obtain interchangeability status. Interchangeability status is the actual definition where if there is a switch that's occurring under law by FDA, not state law, but by FDA, the pharmacist is allowed to change that product without consideration or notification to the physician because you have no change in efficacy or safety between switching from the brand named product to the biosimilar. You cannot utilize the interchangeability between two biosimilars in this case. That doesn't exist for interchangeability. It's between the brand and the biosimilar. So I think we will have several of this, and it's going to be very important to our specialty pharmacy sites and also community-based practices. If we're switching inside a hospital system, we already have therapeutic interchange. But once it goes to the specialty pharmacy outside of our network in this setting, we fall into the realm of actually pharmacy-based laws. And that's a little bit different than what's in our hospital. Having interchangeability, which we hope to see soon, because just this last year, we had finalized guidance on what interchangeability is based on the definition per FDA. And insulin, right? You can only imagine how many times you'd have to call a physician practice every time you have to change a biosimilar insulin. 
You're going to be making multiple phone calls and you don't have time with that in the pharmacy or retail setting. So interchangeability will allow us to switch. For example, anoxaparin could be considered a biosimilar in the near future versus a generic, which it is today. A lot of growth hormones, same thing as well. So that interchangeability status actually maximizes the foundation for what a biosimilar is, provides confidence in the extent of the biosimilar package data for interchangeability, but also changes the workflow for what we're doing with current biologics today in the outpatient setting. And those are my top three picks for the crystal ball uh, of the day. But I think those are going to be relatively relevant. I think the biosimilar parity piece is probably a stretch, but it will only reduce a lot of our workflow or really help reduce our workflow if we did have that available. I know it was a big discussion with Scott and FDA. I think it's going to continue on, especially at institutional levels, but it'll be interesting to see um, as we gleam in the near future for 2025. Ali, I always learned so much in our conversation, submarine patents, interchangeability, and Monday night football uh, predictions. I I love it all. Let's wrap this up with a final question. Is there anything that keeps you up at night about biosimilar reimbursement? Joel, this is probably the most important piece that I do discuss, and it, it affects my staff. It affects the staff of every pharmacy out there in infusion centers, whether it's oncology or non-oncology. You know, the outpatient setting, you're working directly with payers on a daily basis. In fact, you're making phone calls, addressing their own base payer guidelines. And, you know, even within one large entity, you can have state-based laws or practice developments too. So whatever is actually more rigorous. So what we're seeing is payers are telling us what to give. And unfortunately, your finance staff is one of your critical pieces in implementation. So If you're looking at this from a formulary standpoint, you have this drug on your actual list for what's your preferred biosimilar. What we're finding out is you may have problems or information going through your EMR system so that you can't find out what drug was approved. So if your pharmacy staff is double checking with your finance team to make sure it's the right drug, they say yes. But there was another letter that said you had to switch based on the insurance company's preferred therapy in that case. It could be a brand name or a biosimilar in this case. You can lose your revenue stream. So this is happening numerous times at different sites, small, big, intermediate. So there is now more of a clear focus on the payer aspect with what's being approved. So integration into your EMR is essential, if not salient, for making sure you can actually keep the lights on at your facility. And you know that's a very important piece if you're spending $10,000 on a therapy and you actually don't have approval for it, you lose that revenue stream and you can't actually pay back the drug you purchased. So this is the one thing that keeps me up at night. It is a scary situation. You can have errors on this. It's not a medication error. It's actually an error based on finance because they're telling you what to do. And unfortunately, if you don't have something set up in your EMR system, which allows for a double check, just like a double check for chemotherapy, you can lose revenue downstream. So Really, for facilities, I highly recommend creating almost like a tip sheet where if you actually have the finance staff educate. So again, continue to educate the finance staff on the biosimilars using the correct name. I know it may sound very mundane or if not just, you know, very small. But by doing this, this education piece, the finance staff will be more aware of the biosimilars when they're talking to the payers or applying that through the prior authorization process. But then when they put in the notes for financial approval, they can actually have the correct vernacular out there. So you can switch if needed to another biosimilar brand name therapy or you're approved for your own preferred biosimilar. And that is probably the biggest thing that does keep me up at night is that 
as well as the fact that we will have to change right now as we're registering for next year, therapies which are actually brand name products to the preferred biosimilar or vice versa for the 2021 registration pieces for patients starting infusion in January. So just a few things that keep me up at night. Well, I want to thank my good friend, Dr. Ollie McBride, for joining me today to discuss biosimilar reimbursement challenges. Thank you all for tuning in for the session, Pharmacy Hot Topics. Don't forget to check out the website, www.formularytoolkit.org, for our webinar and listen in to our podcast on best practices in formulary management, including unique strategies for biosimilar adoption, integrating biosimilars into your IT system, biosimilar reimbursement challenges, and keeping your patients safe from white bagging. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage Podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.